Okay, let's let us get started today. Um, a couple of things to know before we jump into Isaiah. We do have a team that's headed down to Mexico right now. Um, I think it's actually a pretty small team from Sunnybrook, but it's Jim and Steve, and then so. A couple of people heading down to Piedras Negras to spend some time in Piedras Angular, Piedra Angular. Um, and uh, so your prayers for them this week would be much appreciated. Um, Scott Irwin has a group of college students down in Dallas right now, um, taking advantage of the, of the long weekend to spend some time with a church that we partner with down there that uh, Drew Henderson actually partners with a lot in the junior high ministry. So, those people are off doing great things. Morgan is going to be preaching today on biblical womanhood. And uh, for any of you who know Morgan and her thought process, I've already heard this sermon 400 times in my office. So, I was up late last night doing my own work. Um, Morgan loves the input of others, and she takes preaching very, very seriously. So, I expect it'll be a good one. Um, I could probably recite the last five minutes of this sermon, but it would be weird in a guy's voice. Um, it, it will be good. So I trust that you will all be blessed by that um, here in a little bit. But beforehand, we will jump into Isaiah. We are um, quickly barreling into the sections of Isaiah, and I'm going to be a lot more animated this week because my mouth doesn't hurt. got my tooth fixed. Um, we are flying into the sections of Isaiah that are um, the most recognizable that have probably the clearest application to our understanding of Jesus as the Messiah and to the, the book's use in the New Testament. So we'll be in Isaiah 49, um, and we'll go into the first couple of verses of chapter 50. Um, this, is, this is the second of four, sometimes counted as five, um, servant songs, depending on how you want to, to label them. But this is the second one. Hope taught on the first one back in chapter 42, and you'll see some differences as the servant is described in, in a, a bit of a unique way in this particular chapter. But before we get into um, our text, I think that there is a, a question that I'd like to throw around the room and see what sticks. Um, you'll, you've seen... Um, for several chapters now, probably for more than 10, um, this difficulty that the nation of Israel has with trusting God to deliver on what he said he's going to do. Um, they, are, they are in exile dealing with these prophecies. They are in captivity. Um, slaves wouldn't necessarily be the, the right word, but a, sub, a subjected people in a foreign land with no temple, their national identity has by and large been stripped. Um, they, are, they are a second-class citizen at best, likely lower than that, in Babylon. And they're looking at all of this and saying, and they're questioning the truthfulness um, of, of Isaiah's words. They're, they're questioning the, the truthfulness of, of God's word through Isaiah, that he will one day set everything right, that he will redeem and restore his people. And so... The, our, our chapter today is going to deal with that tendency we have to question or to argue or to be frustrated with situations over and against the truth of Scripture, the truthfulness and the character of God. And so I want to I just kind of discuss for a minute 
What are some situations where we do, you know, the kind of the quintessential definition of, an, of insanity is to continue doing something over and over, expecting different results? What are some situations where we do this, where we know the truth of something and yet our behavior doesn't correlate? Where I know, you know, I, I, it's really easy to spot in children. My son knows that that, that stove is hot and yet that idiot is going to touch it. Like he, he's acting contrary to what he knows. What are, so it's easy for that. And by the way, I'm probably the guy that knows that it's hot, and I'm still going to just touch it to find out how hot. Um, but what are other areas, and I want to keep it in kind of the benign, trivial area first. What are other areas where we ignore facts or ignore the truth of how things are and act in opposition to? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. I like I, I have never said no to pizza. I'm pretty sure I've never said no to pizza. And every doctor on the planet says there are times when you should probably restrict yourself. And yet, like I, I behave contrary to fact. Hmm? Speeding. Speeding. There are there are entire disciplines um, that are associated with industrial design asks the question how safe can you reasonably drive on this particular surface and then maybe shave 10 miles an hour off that and we'll post a sign and we trust that everyone will exercise wisdom and heed the sign and none of us do I look at that sign as a general suggestion plus five <laughs> you know and <laughs> and later I apologized and said, I'm sorry, I don't want to speak. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. At the moment I should... <laughs> so even whenever our behavior runs contrary to truth, when reminded of it, it's still sometimes difficult for us to not just carry on as we were. What else? Even going to church, we hear the sermons, we're supposed to do stuff and do stuff and do stuff during the week, and then we still just show up the next Sunday and hope that maybe... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is now we move into like the real area. Okay. Um, I should probably care about speeding more than I do, but to be honest, I really don't care a whole lot right now. Um, I really, I'm gonna live it up until pizza really starts to kill me. Um, I I totally expect that in both of those areas. Like, my foolishness will eventually catch up to me. And I'm kind of the guy that figures when the dog finally bites, then I'll, then I'll behave. But I do this with church stuff a lot. I do this with my sin. And I, I behave contrary to what I know God expects. Contrary to what I know He will judge. Contrary to what I know He has sent His Son to die for. Contrary to what I know He has enabled me to behave differently. It's one thing to know the standard and to have no ability to live up to it. It's another thing to know the standard and possess the Holy Spirit. And then you see like the absurdity of my foolish and sinful heart as it knows the truth and yet at times can have no difficulty succumbing to temptation. Almost a brazen nature about sin. We can have it. I have, I have no um, impulse to, to press a Christian morality on an unbeliever. 
in many ways that can't do it. In many ways, one who doesn't have the Holy Spirit cannot live up to certain things. Now, I can hold general humanitarian ethics on people. Don't kill people. You don't need the Spirit to know that's wrong. Um, but I do think that you need the Spirit to understand the call to self-sacrifice and service and the call to purity and holiness. And when we have the Spirit, that stuff is enabled in us. It's not too hard for us to do. There's no temptation that will be given that we, can't, that we don't have the ability to withstand, that we don't have the ability to come out of victorious. And yet, we still behave contrary to fact. And so the ancient Israelites get a bad rap for being whiners and complainers and not taking their licks and not dealing with their punishment and not trusting God that he would do what he said he would. But in many ways, we're not in exile and we do the same thing. We walk contrary to the truth. The truth isn't always enough. Um, that the, in the first paragraph, that last question I ask is kind of the one that really hits hard for me. What do we do when truth isn't enough? Can we not reason our way to holiness, to the holiness God demands? Um, and I don't think we can. Yeah, I really don't think it's, a, it's an intellectual thing. I don't think more information is necessary. I think information is good. I think it's helpful. I think it can actually move us towards holiness. But it's not knowing something that makes me obedient and faithful and holy. There's something else that has to take root. Um, let's, let's look at chapter 49 and the first few verses of chapter 50 and see what Isaiah says about this servant that might help us understand what's going on. So this is the second servant song. Um, as, I, as I wrote in your summary, um, this doesn't explain to us the problem with our hearts as much as it describes the one who seems to have no problem obeying. There's something about this servant that is just other than, that is majestic, that is perfect in many ways. Um, and, and in him we can understand probably part of our problem and I would hope some of the solution. Do you have something? In those first few verses when you start underneath, underneath the questions and the rhetoric is a question about is God good, is God faithful? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's helpful to understand that underneath it there is a question underneath here, is God really good? Yes. This chapter, we are still in a large section where um, Isaiah is framing this stuff, and the editors who compiled all of his sayings, they are framing this in a trial motif. God is on trial. He has been accused of not being good. He is being accused of not being as powerful as he says he is. After all, he's, he's been defeated. His house has been torn down. The temple is in ruins. His people have been conquered. They're in captivity. If anything, on the, on the surface, if we put God in the, in the witness stand and we have him on trial, he looks wrong and the Babylonian god Marduk looks like he will be vindicated as the one most powerful, as the true God. 
Why do you keep calling him the great I am? Why do you keep using that name, Yahweh? It doesn't have the power you think it does. Couldn't protect you, couldn't protect his own house of worship. His city, Zion, Jerusalem, is, is in ruins. And his people are scattered, and they're not as special as they say they are. And so that charge, that questioning of his character, his goodness, and his power sits underneath all of this as he starts to articulate who his servant is and what his servant is going to do and how all of that is born out of God's actual character of, in and of himself. So he says, this is, imagine God in the witness stand who's just been told of the crimes that he's been accused of. This is his response through the servant. This is him saying, okay, I will now give my story. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is a worldwide trial. This is a cosmic trial. He's speaking to everyone. The Lord called me from the womb. This is the servant speaking. From the body of my mother, he named me by name. Now, it's important to remember in chapter 42, the servant was associated with righteousness, with judgment, with um, ruling overall. He's got a very kingly description of the servant. Now, the servant looks more like a prophet, like a herald, like one who will speak on behalf of someone. Called me from my womb, that sounds a lot like Jeremiah. From the body of my mother, he named me by name, Jeremiah John the Baptist. This is a very prophetic um, label on, on this servant. He made me, the God made the servant, um, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. In effect, God has crafted a perfect weapon that will deal with his enemies, and yet it remains to some degree hidden. This is a description of his power through the servant, yet the servant is not yet on the scene. This, is, this text is full of tension for its original audience. Wow, that sounds amazing, yet it's hidden. We're st- you seem so powerful in the way that you describe yourself, yet we are still in captivity. There is, this is, these are sections in the book of Isaiah that are full of the now and not yet motif. This, this idea that God is ultimately victorious, but we don't yet experience it to the degree that we want. He said to me, verse 3, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, this is where it can be a little confusing. I still believe this text is talking about a particular person, yet that particular person is taking on a gigantic corporate identity. Who is Israel? Israel is God's chosen people. What are their crimes? They have not lived up to the covenant. They are, they are being punished for their unfaithfulness to God and to His covenant. Enter the servant who is being named Israel. This is, we're now starting to see the plan of salvation unfold, the plan of redemption and restoration unfold. What do we need? We need a perfect representative, a person who can represent the corporate, the, the corporate people of God. So his name is Israel. He will be not only the perfect man, and this is, this is going way back from Genesis 128 where Adam and Eve are, given, are tasked with... Um, with ruling the earth on God's behalf. They failed, so God is going to create a nation. They failed, so God now needs a representative man and a representative Israelite, and he's going to get it in a single servant. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You can see God's motives all over the place. It isn't for Israel's sake. It is for his own that he will do these things. 
And then he starts, the servant starts to sound like a prophet again. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Obviously indicating the, the frustration of working with an obstinate people like Israel. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that's the nation of Israel, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, this is beautiful, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? He's saying, the restoration of the nation of Israel isn't enough. I'm not here to just have a perfect Israelite who can deal with them. I want a perfect man, a representative human that can deal with a worldwide problem. So it's not enough that you deal with the tribes of Jacob. He says at the end of verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So he says this is, this is not just going to be ethnic Israel goes home, rebuilds the city and the temple. This is going to be, that is the, in many ways, the first fruits of a greater return. Um, yeah, we'll see here in a second some Exodus imagery um, starts to pop up again, and we'll, we'll deal with that as we get there. So this servant is coming as a prophet, as a herald, who will speak on behalf of God such that not only Israel, but the nations will experience salvation even to the ends of the earth. Verse 7, Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He says, even, even after what I've described, my servant isn't highly esteemed. And your mind should be flashing to Calvary. You should be flashing to Pilate's house. You should be flashing to all of the passion accounts as Jesus is having his beard ripped out. This is, this, and we'll see this in a few weeks in chapter 53. The servant isn't well treated. Yet, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall um, prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. He says, this is, this, in many ways, the, the servant acts as not only the representative, but the example for Israel. It says, he will suffer and yet will be vindicated. And you're still complaining about your exile? Your suffering doesn't rule out the fact that you will be vindicated, that I will be proved true, God says. Even my perfect servant will suffer on the way to vindication, on the way to justice and righteousness. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. He's going to describe how the, the Israel is going to be restored. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Um, in many ways, asking them to come back and remember God's faithfulness and His goodness throughout um, their history. And then I love this line, I will keep you, speaking of the servant, and give you, the servant, as a covenant to the people. And if you let your biblical imagination run wild, it can fly over to Luke 22, where one who has served his followers says this about himself. 
in verse 19, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I wonder what sort of new understanding and realization flooded over the disciples when they heard him say those words. That their, their rabbi was giving himself as a covenant for them. And God says, I will keep you, the servant, and give you as a covenant to the people. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. The servant, though he is reviled and though he is poorly treated, he still speaks with authority. This isn't a suggestion, come out, prisoners. This isn't a suggestion to those in darkness to appear. It is a command. The servant is a confusing figure because he's meek, he's humble, he has authority, he he can enact justice and people will hate him and he will be broken. Sometimes we talk about salvation and we talk about it here and now. This is a here and now statement about salvation to them. Come out of Babylon now. Be saved now. Yeah. They weren't viewing this as redemption from sin. They were viewing this as a redemption back to the land. That's what they would have understood. And that's why that uh, a few weeks ago we had that bizarre passage where King... um, where Cyrus is referred to as Messiah, as, an, as the Holy One of God, as an anointed one. Because he, in, he actually um, enacts some of verses 8 and 9 on God's behalf. Not as a follower of God, but as a, as a tool in God's hands. years from now, I'm bringing you back, and you're going to get to rejoice in your own land with your own people. Yep. Yep. You'll get to worship me again. And a lot of that, I mean, don't run so quickly past the you'll get to worship me again side. Um, In the ancient, it's a relatively modern idea that worship can be internal, and that it can take place anywhere. Um... Actually, it would, it would have not been viewed that way until Jesus encounters the woman at the well and starts to remove worship as it's tied to a location. For them, they are at any given point operating at an extreme disadvantage because they don't have the Temple Mount, because they don't have the Holy of Holies. Their entire identity is wrapped up in the presence of God, being with them in a very special place, first in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then in the Holy of Holies at the temple. And when that's removed from them, they 
they're asking the question, like, how do we faithfully follow God? We can't, we, they, in many ways, they couldn't. And so, even their ability to be faithful as they understood that was contingent upon returning to the land. And then when you get there, you see some of it becomes so land-centric that even Jesus, when he shows up, he has to correct some of this. He starts to remove the idea. Actually, he doesn't correct it as much as he replaces it. He says, the temple is good, but no longer necessary. I'm going to raise it up again in three days. And then there's that wonderful psalm about by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. It's for this very thing. Mm-hmm. And in it, it says, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I forget the joy of Zion. In other words, if I forget the joy of worship in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. may I never speak again. Yeah. You, if, for those of you that were with us when we were going through the book of Zechariah, there's a... Um, when they return and they start to rebuild the temple, there were, um, there were some men who were old enough to have lived in Jerusalem, were deported, and then came back. And they, they remembered the old temple. And when Zerubbabel built his temple, um, the, the typical um, archaeological kind of guesses at what it looked like show it as being just kind of a it would look like a cinder block building to us today. They just threw it up. They needed a place to worship. And the men who remembered the temple before it was torn down, Solomon's temple, like they couldn't even appreciate it. They, they just sat down and wept because they felt that this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't what our God deserves. And so there is a, a deep, deep longing for their land. And it helps understand why the Exodus themes are so important in this book. This return back across the wilderness, home, which for many of uh, the Israelites would have been a terrifying prospect because most of those who returned home would have been born in Babylon. And to cross the desert would be the most terrifying, unthinkable idea. And yep, that's that's what they longed for. It even describes at the end of verse 9 some of um, the servants' provision for them as they return. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And every good Israelite would remember who led them in the wilderness the first time, the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke, the very presence of God. Um, You can see how um, to sit down and reflect on this figure, they had to believe in some way he's divine because of his office, because of his characteristics that he's described as having. Well, this just seems, this is, this is greater than Moses, though that would have been a difficult thing for them to say. But there's something about this figure that, that just has the very nature of Yahweh. He's going to lead us in the desert. By springs of water, he will guide them. That looks a lot like Moses. 
verse 11. And I will make my mount, all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. In effect, everyone's coming, and I will pave the road for them, and we're all going home. Which is beautiful, and which is worthy of all praise, and we see it naturally in verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. This is a way of saying all creation, everything that is under, the, under God's sovereignty will worship Him. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. All the truth in the world that we need there, all the promise in the world that we need there, and yet look at Israel's reaction. But Zion, another name for Israel, said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Their behavior does not, their attitude does not align with the truth that they should know. When has God been unfaithful? He'll say that in the beginning of verse 50, he'll actually challenge you to remember when he was unfaithful. But they... They look at their, they cannot fathom the word of the Lord as being as true as their understanding of their current circumstances, which to me is, just sounds a lot like myself. I can believe, I can deal with people in such an easier way than I can with, than, than I can deal with God because you guys have skin on. I can talk to you. I trust you more because I can see you. I can touch you. I can actually hear your voice. And that is just. I think, natural and unbelievably foolish. Why do I, why would I rather consult the wit and wisdom of humanity than sit down and, and hash it out with God in prayer? Because you have skin on. I think a lot of times we want immediate answers. Like the Israelites praying, God, save us now. Mm -hmm. So we make an action to trust God, but we don't actually trust Him in His time. We want everything right now. Yeah. Save us, God, but take us on a jet and land us over in yeah. the middle, build that temple back. Do this quickly. Even with our prayer, I pray for stuff a lot of times, and then I'll go a couple days later, well, it ain't fixed itself, and we find a way to fix it. Yeah. I didn't, didn't even really give God the chance to do his thing. I, I this is what we do. At least for me, it's, it's so easy to believe in the power, the judgment, or the righteousness of God. But there are times that it's hard to believe in the goodness of God. You see something happen brings you to great grief over something that happens and then at some point you wonder God how can you be good I yeah. mean, why should I believe that I believe you're powerful yeah I believe that you brought it all into being yeah. but you know I think that sometimes it's just hard to trust that God is good and I think that this, these passages are good to argue that you don't have a leg to stand on to make that argument Jim you just don't <laughs> yeah the, the most powerful example of that in my recent life was whenever my wife was pregnant with our daughter. And all the ultrasounds and all the whatever told us um, one of her kidneys wasn't developing right. Actually, it didn't have enough, they call them like cords. They didn't have enough cords going to it. And um, it looks like she's going to like be born and have to have immediate surgery to take it out or she's going to spend a lot of time on a lot of medicine when she's um, probably going to be in the NICU for a while. And I had no 
Um, Diane might remember this. I was miserable to be around because I did not believe God was good at all. I just, I thought, I got tired of people telling me they were going to pray that God would fix it. I got tired of people telling me that no matter what, it would be okay. I just, I went really bleak for a while. And I was in Sharon's office every other day just being a complete bore about it. And I lost sight of the fact that God is good because it seemed like he wasn't going to be good on my terms. And I went into a little bit of like a frozen panic about it. And my wife was totally calm. She's like, we'll do whatever we got to do. And I'm like, why aren't you freaking out about this? And I just, I looked like a horrible example of someone who trusts God to do what's going to be. And I, didn't, and I don't even need him to, I, I told everyone, I trust that he can fix her kidney I just don't trust that he will. Which I would say all the time on, in any situation. Said that about my brother-in-law. Trust that God can heal all his cancer. Don't believe he will. And yet whenever it was so close to me and it was going to be, um, there were a lot of things that affected it. My daughter, she's so helpless. You know, there's a difference in a 25-year-old suffering and a newborn suffering. There are lots of reasons that came to kind of a boiling point where I lost sight of the goodness of God and I just I almost expected him to just kill her. Like I was I was kind of that pessimistic about it. And it was it was hard on me, really hard on me. And I remember even whenever and so this is the funny thing. About three weeks before she was born, my wife she had like weekly specialist appointments down in the city. Um, they couldn't find the problem anymore. Like it was just gone. So, like, I truly believe a miracle was, like, took place, and I didn't even want to talk about it. Like, I was still so mad, and, like, I had, I had become pretty calloused about it. Um, my mom didn't even know that it was fixed, because I wouldn't tell her. Like, I, I just, I still didn't believe, I didn't believe, I thought the technician was an idiot, and that the problem was still there. Um, I started looking up credentials of these doctors she was speaking, I was just like, <laughs> things don't just disappear. Problems don't just go away. And... I remember, like, um, my mom was furious with me when she was born fine, and she found out I had known for, like, three weeks. Um, but, I, like, I, I had so decided I wasn't going to trust God to be good in this that I just I didn't want to talk about it with anyone. I was, I was very, very difficult to be around. And it was in that process, it took me actually probably six months of kind of thinking through what I did and why I kind of, imploded like that, that it really, it broke me of that. Um, now, who knows if I have another kid with um, birth defects, I don't know how I'll react. I trust I'll react better. But I didn't trust, I knew that God could, I didn't trust him to do it. Like, I, I know that he's powerful, I, I forgot that he was good. And I started to see him as this, like, God that, like, delights in judgment. And I thought, I don't know what we've done, and I don't know what's going on, but this is going to be, like, this is on us somehow. Okay, I'm going to have a sickly kid for the rest of her life, and whatever. So is that like not trusting yourself then? Mm, I don't know. I, I guess I just got so tired of, I probably prayed bad prayers for too long, and when God just 
wasn't answering dumb prayers. I figured he wouldn't answer good ones. And, um, or that he's just always going to be like, just say no. Um, but in the end, like, I get to say, I, always, I say this to Rachel all the time. Hey, you remember when Audrey had crappy kidneys and then she didn't? <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's almost like our new history that we get to remember God's goodness and faithfulness. And that we get to worship him because he didn't owe us that at all. Didn't owe Audrey that. And he still did it. But for when we found out, she was probably, Rachel's probably four or five months along. So for the last half of her pregnancy. And then I would say a good while after she was born, like I just went into a black hole over it. And um, I don't know. And it's hard to take home that we really need to be careful singing songs to a heavy heart. <laughs> How angry did that make you when people kept saying, God is good, he's going to take care of it. She could have been born with crappy kidneys. Yes, and, and I fully expected her to be. And you would have dealt with it. What I need people to do. Yes, yeah. so it's almost like the truth isn't always helpful. It remains true, but it's not helpful. Sometimes I think our job is to just sit down and be mad with someone or to weep with them and not be so quick to give an answer. I saw this. I wasn't nearly as close to it with Rachel's brother, but I saw it with her brother. Like her immediate family just got so tired of the encouraging word. Sometimes you just need to shut your mouth and let them cry. It also seems to me that it's a much better situation to be angry with God than to act like He doesn't exist. Oh, absolutely. It's much better to be angry and say, God, I can't stand you, you know, than it is to say, well, this just proves it. You're not even there. Yeah. Forget you. There is something about the fact that I took a long time of just poking God in the chest that He was able to break me of that. And again, I haven't really been tested since. With some, to some degree, Rachel's brother, but really it wasn't nearly as close as Audrey was to me. Um, but it was almost like I needed to be that defiant and that obstinate before he could break me and say, like, now do you see? And I, I really think if we had another child with crappy kidneys and they were born with crappy kidneys, I think I'd handle it a lot better now because we've already gone blow for blow with it. So. Just by reading some book, I think it's part of your journey. I, don't, mm -hmm. I, I think it takes time, and I don't think that we all arrive there at the same time. And I think that being angry with God is probably part of it at most of our journeys. Mm -hmm. We don't want to admit it. We don't like it. It's embarrassing to us. We don't want to talk about it. We want to shove it off to the side like it's not real. We want to pretend that we're all these little sweet, good little Christian people that just sit around saying pious things when we're as angry as all get out and want to spit acid. And that is the last thing. I mean, it's just not true. It's that not. is just such a dishonest statement. And it will eat you alive to retreat like that. Um, kind of what we were talking about last week, the value of having people that are close to you that can speak unfiltered truth to you. There's also a value of having someone close to you that you can just unload on. And I need them to be biblically informed, too. Like, I need them to have the wisdom to not give me advice right now. But I also need them to have the wisdom to, when the time is appropriate, take me back to God's goodness. And call 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want you to be in that dark place, and so it's almost like the the tendency to want to get them back on track of who God really is isn't helpful half the time. And so, kind of like you were saying, I think there is a time for letting them be honest with yeah how they see God, even though it's not true. Letting them. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> Sometimes I'll, I'll actually, so like this is me on the, now I'm the comforting side of things, and Ryan comfort people, really. <laughs> but sometimes like my best, my best uh, the best thing I can do for them is to affirm how they feel and then push them on it, and I, usually I can get them to come back on their own. So they'll talk about how difficult it is and how they, they don't know if God is good anymore. I'm like, I don't know, maybe he's not. I just start agreeing with them. And eventually, it's almost like if I keep pushing them to their own extreme enough, they'll be like, hold on, Ryan. He is good. I'm like, yeah, I know he is, but I need you to kind of work through all these feelings. And it's helpful that you, were, you kind of found the ability to arrive at that conclusion on your own. So God is, you know, he's just not kind or he doesn't whatever. Sounds good. Okay. Let's deal with this. And we need to determine not to deal with these things in a single conversation. Sometimes I need to like let you go home pretty upset. And uh, I think the, the inner mother in all of us wants everyone to be happy and well-fed. And sometimes the best thing for you is to go home miserable. Um, if I'm only ever like stroking your feelings, then I don't know if we're actually making any progress. If you think God has done you a disservice, okay, we'll talk again next week. I don't need to, I don't want to, I actually don't want to lie to you. And so I don't want, I don't even want to tell you that it's all going to be better. I don't want to tell you that God will heal your daughter's stupid kidney. That's just foolish. That is an arrogant, foolish, unwise thing to say. The better answer is, I know this hurts and I have no idea how it's going to work out. Whatever the case, I'll be here. That's a safe answer. And I think that that's one that leaves me with dignity. It's one that makes sure that I am aware that there are people that are here uh, that I can speak to. And it's one that will never write a blank check for God. That's dumb. Don't promise that God, I mean, yeah. So, in all of that, Israel looks a lot like I did a couple years ago. In spite of all that I know about you, I still believe you've left me, you've forsaken me, that you aren't good. And then God responds with three powerful truths about himself. He doesn't chastise them for the question. Um, he continues to reveal who he is and lets that do the talking. First, he spends some time explaining that he is aware of their plight. 
He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And and the, the obvious implied answer is, of course not. And he says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It's a revelation illusion. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. And he says, lift up your eyes and see. They all gather. They all come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. The nations will be your heritage, he says. He says, I am aware. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. In effect, you are going to, the nation is again going to be prosperous and populated. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone from where have these come? He says, like what I do will be unmistakably impressive. You won't even know how all of this has taken place. I am aware of your hardship and I will deal with it. Then he describes his triumph over the rest of the world. And um, as he finishes out chapter 49, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. He's saying, I'm going to put you over all nations. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. He just continues to describe his might over all things. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. What more encouraging line could you ask for? I will battle against those who battle against you. And I will save your children, he says. I will make your your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh, all of creation, shall know that I am Yahweh your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So he says, in light of their questioning of his goodness, he says, I am aware of your of your situation, and I will triumph over all things. And then he says, and I am powerful enough to do it. Verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus says Yahweh, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Now he's, he's responding to the, the implied accusation that he has rejected his people. And he is going to say, no, let's look at the facts. I was the one who was rejected. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? It doesn't exist. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? The answer is no one. 
Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. He said, don't blame me. Don't hold me culpable for your crimes. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? The implied answer is no, of course not. Or have I no power to deliver? Of course you have the power. Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I control all things, he says. I am powerful enough to do what I said I'll do. And that is all in direct response to verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. He says, no, no, no. You for you have forsaken me. You forgot me. And I am so good that I will still pursue you. And I will still place you above nations. And my servant will be, as it says back in 40 verse 8, be given as a covenant to the people. This is a, a good reminder, these, these two, this chapter 49 and the beginning of 50, that uh, our situation as we understand it does not um, undermine the truth of who God is and, and how good He is. I'll read us through this last paragraph in the notes. When we concede that God knows what's going on, that He is victorious and that He cannot be stopped. What happens to our rebellious hearts? I wish simple assent or agreement to the truth fixed my wayward nature, but it simply isn't so. I can know something without being consumed by it. Rather, I am shaped by the things I love. My sin is seldom a result of lacking information. Unholiness grows according to my affections. I'll act, think, and speak according to the things I love. May our reflection on the things of God result in new affections more than additional information, which is perhaps why we remember Jesus every single week when he instructed us that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Um, I believe that that is one of the most valuable things about taking communion every week because it challenges my memory, and it challenges my heart to love the things of God, not just know them. Uh, because, I mean, there's very little about communion that in my head, like, I feel like I don't kind of understand. But there's a lot about it that I don't yet love and have a deep affection for. And whenever I struggle with um, unholiness, it is not for lack of information can't remember the last time I've had to repent of something I didn't know was wrong. <laughs> when I repent, it's because I did something I knew was wrong in the first place. But it's, it's easy to succumb to temptation when my, when my heart isn't there, when my heart doesn't love the things God loves. So it's not another book, it's not another sermon, it's not one more thing that I need to know in order to be good and moral. Um, it's the Spirit using those things that should affect change in my heart and should change the things I love. 
Um, I need to just do it. I keep, I, I always find a reason to reference um, Thomas Chambers or Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers' sermon, um, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He preached it in probably like 1902, 1904, somewhere. And so it's, it's a little bit of an archaic English, and it's very, a little difficult to understand. I always say I'm going to translate it into modern English so that we can read it together. But his sermon says, it's not that we need to remove sin from our lives and therefore we'll be good. He said, you still love those things. So it's not not doing something that makes you good. It's replacing that affection with a greater affection. The heart, the human heart is meant to love, it's meant to worship, it's meant to um, dote on things. And so he says, if, if lust is your problem, it's not don't lust. It's learn to love something more. Replace that affection with a greater affection. So if you, and you, it's obviously the copyright, I don't know if it ever had a copyright on it, but you can find it on the internet, it's really easy. Thomas Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. The, the sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a Greater, or The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, or Greater Affection, one of those words. But it's, um, I remember four or five years ago, Drew Moss read it to the staff, and it was just powerful. And he, and he just says, restriction alone won't fix your problem. Replacing, replacement is the way to go. And so it, it would be worth our time this week, probably with someone, to take an inventory of the things you love that you shouldn't. A great, a great example is when you watch television, do you ever laugh at the things Jesus died for? Do you delight in things Jesus was crucified for? Why? And what can you replace as a greater affection than those things? Um, again, doing this by yourself can only yield limited results. Doing it with a trusted brother or sister in Christ will be far more fruitful. Not only do you have an opportunity to confess sin, but you have an opportunity to confess an area where you're susceptible to sin. And when you have the accountability of someone who knows that, you'd be shocked what kind of strides you can make. Um, Plus, you have the collective wisdom of two people who have the Spirit of God in them. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray for us. And then we will, uh, we will hit it. Father, make us uh, rightly understand your character. It is from you that all goodness, all morality, all ethics derive. And so, God, if we are to live holy lives, and we are, that's your calling on us. If we're to do that well, we can't do so without knowing you well. For you are the standard, you are the benchmark. And I pray that as we study you, get to know you, spend time with you, that you would expose the areas in our lives where we doubt you, where we love things we shouldn't. And I pray that you would, by your spirit and your scriptures and your people, challenge us in those areas to greater degrees of faithfulness. 
Help us to see the transformation that's taking place. Encourage us with your goodness. And show us what it is you would have us do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.